When we cross borders, we cross identity, class, and break and reform social connections and restrictions. Traversing the Midwest to Mesoamerica and from Miami to Multnomah were two multicultural Latinx women who found each other while navigating through a sea of white in the Pacific Northwest. We seek to illuminate the often hidden intersections of immigration with different stories and Richard Atayas, breaking the homogeneity by amplifying voices that often get drowned out in this wet city. I'm Nellie. I'm Amy. And we're coming to you from Portland with our podcast, Different Talles. Thanks for joining us today on Different Talles. In the, as our guest today, we have Emily Prado. She is uh, identifies as Chicana, born in the Bay Area. She's a weak, uh, consistent contributor to the Portland Mercury, has a column there. She also has uh, publications in Bitch Media, Travel Portland, or Mescla, amongst other publications. She's also a zinester, uh, uh, created a very important zine, Women of Color and Punk Rock, an anthology of women of color punk pioneers from 1970s to the 90s. How's it going? Good, how are you doing? You're also a photographer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do. I do a few things, you know. Just a couple of things. Yeah, yeah. I probably <laughs> forgot too. So, <laughs> well, we're really excited to have you here. Yeah. Um, I was honored enough to hear you read at a Portland Zine Fest event over the winter, and so you've kind of been on my like interview wish list since then because I really enjoyed hearing your work, and then after seeing everything else you do, it seems like you have a distinct viewpoint and something to say so we're ready to let you say it uh, okay I'll try. <laughs> thanks yeah it's a, um yeah it's I've had a few people who said that they saw me and I, I it's all just like a whirlwind that, that specific day too is the first time I've ever read in Portland uh specifically oh, wow. or oh my gosh in, in okay. the U.S. the first time I'd read anything was at the artist residency I did in January in Mexico oh wow um yeah, and it was this, like, a hectic time. My car got stolen. I got it back miraculously <laughs> with my computer and all my residency <laughs> work. Um, yeah, so, and then I was just like, there are a lot of people here. I'm going to hide in the corner. <laughs> well, you made an impression. I would not have known that it was your first time. <laughs> so props to that. Um, before we get into, like, some more of your stories about the, you know, your relationship to the U.S.-Mexico border and... Um, kind of the personal family narratives there. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about how long you've been in Portland, kind of where you moved from, and how long you've been here? Yeah, so I moved to Portland when I was 18, so it's been about eight years now. It'll be eight years in August. And um, I came here because I wanted to go to school somewhere that was, like, a safe distance from my family, as in, like... (laughs) just far enough but not too far you know if I needed to I could drive down in 10 hours which I do often now um 10 to 12 and um yeah I just I needed a little bit of distance I know to like grow as a person but I also wasn't particularly interested in moving super far away and um I had you know some friends who lived here already and I visited once and it seemed like a you know okay spot to to land into and so I went to Portland State um in 2009 is when I started going there what area did what was the area you lived in before you moved here um i've actually moved from the bay area so i moved from the south bay uh in a town halfway between san francisco and san jose mm-hmm. called belmont 
I was born in Red Oak City, um, but okay. most of my upbringing was in Belmont, which is a pretty like white, homogenous, uh, middle upper middle class kind of suburb, um, which was yeah a very interesting experience as like one of the only brown people. Uh, but that said, like our school was still very diverse, and there were other people who looked like me. Just um, it was an interesting town to grow up in. Yeah. Do you feel like then you're, because, you know, we've talked before about kind of our moves being a little more shocking because we've come from, you and I have both come from more diverse cities. Did you still feel that moving here or? Absolutely. I mean, um, even though, like, uh, my town was particularly, like, homogenous white, the towns are really, like, you know, 10 minutes, like, in mm -hmm. your new town, 10 minutes in your other town. Redwood City, where I was born, uh, has a very large, like, Latinx population, and my school, too, was like very diverse actually. Um, we had, you know, folks from from all walks of life, and also people, like white people, were acclimated to interacting with people of color, which seems to not be the case here. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> no, no <laughs> way. Yeah. <laughs> so after like graduating from PSU, I guess I'm curious what made you decide to stay in Portland. What like anchored you here? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I graduated in 2012. I I had been in like an alternative high school program for my last years in high school, where I, bas I basically just went to community college instead. And so I finished my degree pretty quickly, um, in like two and a half years. And so when I graduated, I was 20. And oh. I was like, I was still very young. Um, and I thought about moving home, and I did for a little bit to work at the summer school, but I still just felt like I needed time to explore the city more. Um, I'd grown up with a partner and wanted to experience the city, like not in relation to that partnership. Yeah, on my own, exactly. And yeah, I don't know, I've, I've had many plans to leave. Um, actually, th this tattoo uh, on my inner forearm is of a rose because it was my tribute to Portland. So I was like, I'm leaving. This was in 2012, which was the year I graduated. Um, yeah, I told everyone else that I was leaving, and then plans changed, um, so I stayed, and I've been here for eight years now, and, <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like I've heard that narrative here several times, yeah. from, even in the, the queer panel we were at last week, something that people just keep coming back, right, I, like, will just hear stories from random friends saying, like, yeah, this person just moved back after, like, however many years. Literally right after that queer panel, so I was walking with uh, my friend, and he was like, yeah, I don't know if I'll stay here, and I was like, no, don't move, <laughs> we just became friends, you can't move. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of, um, yeah, if people aren't getting ready to move they have that like escape plan in their mind yeah. or yeah mine's been like a, at least six year long escape. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know it's just you know it's there's still a lot of benefits to living here um but I miss the sun a lot right now it's summer so you forget about that easily when it's summer yes. um I also miss people of color but yeah. now I'm you know more intentional about creating that space and connecting with people of color uh so that's been better and like satiating that immediate need to leave yeah um but i think i will leave at some point and probably come back at some point i, I own a home here so yeah but oh yeah that makes sense um okay so you didn't leave you're staying for I'm now. here right now um, at this moment at this moment <laughs> so what you've kind of done some concrete things to 
to stay attached to here, buying a home, but also with your career. How did it go kind of getting to that point, like from graduation to being able to be like a pretty consistent contributor to Portland Mercury? Yeah, so uh, when I graduated school, I graduated with a degree in, uh, it's in the School of Social Work at PSU, but it's um, called Child and Family Studies with a minor in elementary ed. And my plan, my trajectory, it like, you know, was a classic, I have my entire life, my 12-year plan, <laughs> or whatever I scoped out, which included uh, becoming an elementary school teacher. But as I did internships and um, got more hands-on experience, even within the school district, which like later I learned PPS is particularly like messed up so it makes sense mm-hmm. why my view of it was very um I guess jaded but that's also the same situation in a lot of cities yeah. um but that left me disenfranchised and I was like I can't I can't imagine myself working like a job that I have to take home and like emotionally bring home with me all the time yeah and so I kind of graduated my last semester and being like I know I'm not going to do this degree that I've been working you know for years to t- towards which was a little weird to do but I finished and after school, uh, I decided to, I was still doing work with kids, I still love working with youth, and I decided to figure out how to get um, an internship. So I found a really cheap rent at this like terrible house in North Portland, which I've met several people who have lived in, in the same house <laughs> since. Like, we'd be like, oh my god, no way, you lived at that one house. I think that's like a punk house thing. <laughs> like, like sometimes <laughs> houses get passed down, you know, like, a couple of kid generations later you're that like oh so man much cooler, but this is just like an angry like weird kid who <laughs> oh. is not punk at all <laughs> um, but man maybe he like listened too much rage against machine or something i don't know he's very angry but anyway that little house yeah mm-hmm. um, but i figured i wanted to try exploring new things so i figured out a way to start an internship and so um when i was 20 i started interning at bitch media uh 20 or 21 i think but um yeah, so I just, like, found... I looked for publications that were based in Portland, and I was like, I don't really know much about feminism, but sure, I'll try it. Um, <laughs> I like like women's rights, I guess. You know? <laughs> I did like, in one class on feminism, basically, which was, like, women of color spe- specified. So, um, yeah, I was just like, I like to write. I'm interested in learning more and eager to learn. And I sent it to, like, every alias, which now looking back is probably the most annoying thing. <laughs> but uh, I was looking forward to it. And so I started I started working with them. And um, I have the title of second longest intern there, which oh, I don't think they're really proud of it. They're like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have been out of here for so long. Like, like, wait, no, I want to learn more. You had, you had, like, the PhD of internships. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're um, going to feel on Yeah, so I started with a new media internship and then switched to editorial. Uh, but that was super, super helpful in allowing me to not only get my first piece published, but to view it from the perspective of like the editor. So off the jump, I was seeing like what makes a good pitch, what because I was responsible for kind of like looking through the email pitches and then presenting those pitches to the actual editors to then narrow down further. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was a lot of responsibility to be like, yeah. I don't know what this is like. But, you know, <laughs> I figured it out. I would, I would learn patterns, you know, yeah. of, like... Oh, like, okay, they want, like, really smart things. Okay, I guess. <laughs> and then through kind of, like, viewing the critiques that they had of pieces, I was able to understand what I needed to do to be a writer. The first piece that I wrote for them was about Domitila Barrios de Chungara, who was a labor rights leader and activist from Bolivia. 
and she specifically spoke to the working class needs of uh, mine workers in Bolivia, but was also an advocate for women's rights and uh, kind of brought the perspective of women of color to, um, it was like an international feminist, uh, like women's year, I think it was called, but she was invited to speak at that. And so I had learned about her during class at PSU and I was like, okay, I wanna write about this lady. And so I did, um, and looking back, it's like very dry. It's like, I was still learning how to transition from academic writing to writing for a magazine. Um, oh yeah. And so yeah, that was a, was a transition. I, I worked, I continued to contribute to Bitch for a few years, but would only write a couple pieces a year. Mm-hmm. And um, worked at like a local tech company for two years, which was awful full time. Yeah. Um, until I quit in September. And I started writing for the Mercury in July. So it'll be a year and a couple of weeks here. Oh, wow. And so in the year, last year has really been the most, um, I guess, like establishment in my writing career Mm -hmm. as a journalist. And when I was quitting um, the tech company I worked at that shall not be named. Uh, I (laughs) never shall any tech company be named here. Exactly. (laughs) That's a fascist cheetah. You're not supposed to say their name. It's not real. So I'm going to go that. So, yeah, I, when I quit that, I didn't anticipate writing being actually something I could sustain myself with. Uh, so the way I did it was to get employment part-time at the library that I work at in Oregon City, as mm-hmm. well as as a nanny for two different families oh, wow. to cover, cover my base, like my rent, my utilities, and know that that was covered. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I was like, okay, I can try to supplement with writing. Yeah. And in the course of a year... I've quit both the nine jobs, That's and um, I work at the library four hours a week, and so it's it's become a career, which I didn't necessarily think it was, and yeah. I haven't been trained, in, and so I didn't know how to go about it, it just kind of happened yeah. um, through trying and, you know, trial and error. Yeah, and so that so. actually was part of my, you know, not expecting for this to be able to be something to sustain myself. When I came back from my residency, I was at a month-long residency in Maravatio in Michoacán, um, it was my first time at an art, artist's, artist residency, and I was like, I really want to write more. How do I write more? That was like one of my goals. Mm-hmm. I actually revisited a journal entry a couple like a couple days ago, and I was like, this is the year of the writer. How do I do? You know, how do I do it? Keep trying, keep trying. And one of the things was like, man, I wish I could have a column. This was like in like one day after I got back. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have a column. And this was again right after the um, the inauguration happened. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could have a column so I could have a regular source of income and wouldn't have to be as worried about the constant hustle of freelancing because yeah. it's constantly like, do you want my idea? Yes or no? And then, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not like a regular paycheck. It's stressful. Um, and so I was thinking about, like, the needs of the Mercury and what, what I could potentially do a column on. And I noticed on their website that they had a section that was like, resistance and solidarity calendar. And you click on that and there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, hello, editor. <laughs> would you like I me see to... I see a boy. I would like to curate a weekly roundup of activist-oriented events. And uh, I, you know, here's what I would focus on. Here's an example of what that might look like. And if you need someone to input it 
the events on the, on the calendar, I can do so on an hourly basis. So let me know if you're interested. Here's what the title would be. <laughs> <laughs> but the title, my, my friend V actually came up with, oh, uh, nice. which is From Slacktivism to Activism. So yeah. that's been going on for 23 weeks now, which I know because that's how I name all my documents. <laughs> <laughs> Week 23. Yeah. <laughs> so about half a year now. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about that, just um, being able to establish that after the inauguration, which is already, a, like, the second that happened, you know, you would think, like, I, I know, like, I felt that my voice will never be heard, or, like, I felt hopeless with it, so to be able to establish a column in that timeline is pretty incredible, so Thanks. congratulations on that, I think. Yeah, it's something, too, I would have wanted to write before, but yeah. uh, I think that for a lot of people, it was, like, a quote-unquote wake-up call, which... You know, being socially active and involved in nonprofits is not something that's been new to me, or yeah. this experience um, isn't something new. But I saw a renewed sense of interest in that, and so that's what also made it possible. Is like, white people were finally like, "Wow, racism does suck and is still happening," um, which maybe a lot of people didn't realize until the inauguration or the election, even. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here to kick people in the shape and tell them exactly <laughs> where they can where to go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So while it sounds like you've found your footing and really established yourself in terms of a career in Portland, um, I'm sure there are still lots of challenges working within this space. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about um, how you've pushed your own voice, um, what the struggle has been there around kind of phrasing things in the way that you want them to be phrased versus working with an editor, and kind of how that experience has gone. Yeah, so um, Portland is similar to a lot of media outlets in, in the nation in general, in that editors are typically white and um, the problem with that comes when you're writing for an audience that isn't only white and your words can be changed and words that have meaning and significance can be altered by editors um, unknowingly often, which is like what you know microaggressions are, right? When people are uh, unknowingly or without intention creating situations that are annoying or <laughs> just like... Yeah. Uh, culturally insensitive, right? Um, so, sorry. I but I think, like, with with microaggressions, uh, yeah, like, it's easy to say they're annoying, but the buildup becomes really damaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so. and it's something that happens, like, all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Okay. To a point where it's, like, an actual reflex, like, a physical reflex, you know, <laughs> a reaction that you think doesn't take something out of you, but it does. So I can't imagine when you're trying to push through that in your career, even how exhausting those microaggressions can be. Yeah, and it's, you know, when you're working with an editor and they're changing your words, it's like I wanted to one time write an article and it was like 15, you know, Latinas that inspire me. And um, if the editor changed the title to Chicana and publishes that, that's my word, which I'm like, well, no, someone from Bolivia who lives in Bolivia isn't a Chicana. Yeah. And now I have to educate you on the difference of that, which is frustrating because it makes me sound like I'm the ignorant one. <laughs> and when you're publishing this on like a national media outlet, you're going to get backlash and that's going to be directed towards me and like make me look bad. Yeah. 
And then there's other, you know, smaller things where that, that's a pretty big mess up, right? Yeah. And then there's smaller things where, um, like I was telling y'all before, if, I, if I'm writing in a column, you know, um, you know, this person was arrested for driving while black. People of color typically know that that means that they're being targeted because they are black and they're basically getting pulled over for no reason. So that's a quick, succinct way of saying that. Uh, when I tried to run that in the local weekly paper, that was altered to say, for driving for looking like a gangster, in quotes. Oh, oh my god. And that is what the officer said, but it's like, you're, you're like elevating the voice of the police officer in this situation. And replaced your voice. And you replaced, yeah, you replaced my voice with his voice, and, and that's not it's basically a racist dog whistle, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so. so, like, that's that's a couple examples, right? But there's also, like, with that same editor in particular, um, I've had issues where, you know, I, I pitch something, and from the get-go, they're like, okay, you can write this, but don't come off too preachy or aggressive. And that those are the sort of things where it's like, well... You're assuming that I have bias and I'm going to come off this aggressively because it's about people of color, but when you talk to your white writers who are writing about white people who are seen as neutral, are you prefacing your request like this? I don't think so. So yeah. it can be really frustrating. And as one of the only people of color I also, like who are writing, sorry, specifically uh, regularly in this town, I know there's a lot, of, there's, there's some of us, but mm -hmm. um, at this paper in particular, like I'm one of few. There's also, like, I'm, I'm constantly overworking myself because I view my writing and, like, what I've ended up focusing my writing on is, like, amplifying the voices of people of color, specifically in art and activism and mm -hmm. music, and there's only one of me, especially before when I was working other jobs, it's really hard, so I'm always encouraging other people to get involved, and it's, it's yeah, it's just, it's just exhausting sometimes. Yeah, and we talked about it, I think, before, where... We lived in really diverse cities where we had the luxury of the communities we're supporting at that point just needed numbers because there was already wonderful voices and we just, you just really just had to show up and, and you were contributing. But in Portland, when I initially moved here, I tried that, you know, which I unknowingly realized that I was doing that. Like I was just showing up to POC spaces as a number and not as a contributor. And in Portland, I think we don't have I, I don't feel like I have that luxury or, or that space to do that like that's the reason we do this podcast is because we have to add to the, like we have to add to the voices not just to the numbers of people who show up sustains you in terms of your writing but I want to get into a little bit of what you write when you have you know free reign when you're in Michoacan <laughs> and kind of if we can get into too a little bit about your family history and kind of it seems like that's something that really informs your writing so I don't know if you want to do a little family background first and then get into that or okay yeah family ba background first then? yeah okay sure that's like a lot of questions set up some context yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um yeah um, i don't know where to start really but um so i guess is your family 
were they in that area of the South Bay for a while or like both sides of the family or how what brought them there yeah so my I'll start with my mom because I know more about my mom's side of the story I actually told my grandma um, this morning to kind of get a refresher on that history because I, I knew the basics of it but I just wanted to make sure that you know I'm putting it on, on record it's it's accurate or as accurate as possible but my grandma uh, my grandma had she was born in I think Abatsingan she's from Michoacan that's where my mom was born in Abatsingan Michoacan and um, she had come to the U.S. once when she was younger like 16 and was working in fields in California uh, but was sent back she was she was caught by um, La Mira like immigration police and ICE and sent back and then um, she had my mom and in 1967 and in 1968 when my mom was a year old she decided to bring her to the U.S. Um, my my grandma had a sister living in uh, Yuba City near Yuba City California and wanted to come to the U.S. to like have a better life for her and so uh, she took a bus from Apatzingan to Tijuana and that was about two, two and a half days or so on, on a bus. And she took that bus apparently with my, with my great grandparents, so her mom and her dad. And um, on the way, my mom got super sick and almost died and the Red Cross at the border and Tijuana was able to like, nurse her back to health. But essentially she had eaten like some grapes that had some, some mm. you know, illness yeah. attached to them. Yeah. And um, was really sick. And so my mom actually stayed with my grandparents, which I, I didn't, or my great-grandparents, and I didn't actually know this until talking to my grandma this morning. I knew that my mom had been sick, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize that she had stayed behind while my grandma crossed successfully. Oh, wow. Oh. And so my grandma crossed successfully for two months, and then she used her sister's papers. Um, and then my uh, great-grandparents were able to come over because cause the oldest daughter who was there was established, and so they were able mm-hmm. to get visas. And they brought over um, my mom using papers from my, like, my grandma's sister's kid. So her cousin. Her okay. cousin was born a year before in California. So basically in that time, my grandma was explaining to me, it was super easy. You just use other people's documents and memorize, like, my grandma was saying not only, like, what their first and middle name and last names were, where they were born, but, like, when did you get your your papers and what year and what city were you did you enter and all this stuff so mm-hmm. um throughout her time she brought like she still had she brought uh, several people over and I actually remember um my being in the car with my mom as we brought over a family friend from the border using my aunt's papers I was in the car and I was just like pretend that's your aunt I was like okay Cool. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like most Latino Latinx families have you have lots of tias and tios either way, so it's like yeah, yeah sure, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's cool because you know it's in the car. It's like a, I was telling my grandma's like I'm sorry, I don't think I'm gonna pass on your lineage of being a coyota. <laughs> but it's cool. And yeah, so my mom pretty much was raised like her whole life in the U.S. She was in Rhode City. Um, and you know hung out with chicanos and mm-hmm. uh was kind of a little chola and <laughs> uh, my dad actually he has like the opposite story 
He was born here, or born in the U.S., in near Redwood City, I think, as well, um, but was raised for most of his life in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know exactly how, like, my grandparents had come over here. That part's a little fuzzy, and I asked my mom, and she doesn't know either. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I could call and ask him. I'm not going to right now, but, you know, maybe one day I'll find out the details of that. But he came back to the U.S. when he... Um, like was a freshman, freshman age or so to learn English and mm-hmm. um, was was a citizen already. Uh, so he came over and my my parents met in high school, and um, my sister was born a little after that. And, and yeah, that's kind of like the basic of our of our family history there. Yeah. And then my mom didn't get her um, actual citizenship until she was thirty. So after I was born, after I think my brother was just born too. Mm-hmm. So when you had your, um, you went to Michoacan for the writing retreat, was that your first time going back? Or had you been back multiple times? Was it something that your family tried to make like more a part of your lives? Yeah, so I was born in California, um, but I grew up going to Michoacan, like summers a lot when I was oh, little, wow. yeah, and going to my dad's. Um, and then the story I'll read later, I talk about, like, there was one summer I spent a whole month there. And my mom would always talk about how I'd come back and have, like, a, like, super Mexican slangy accent. <laughs> and, um, you know, know all the, like, Spanish really good. <laughs> so I wish I would have retained more of that. But so you'd stay down, like, the whole summer? or Oh, uh, like a month of it. So, no. But, um, yeah, I, and we, every year we'd vacation in a tourist spot of Mexico, mostly. So... Uh, after we start, stopped visiting my dad's part of town, because my ma, like all of my mom's side, they don't live there anymore. Like everyone has come to the U.S. or died, mm-hmm. and so it was a lot of fishing, visiting my dad's family. But we specifically stopped going there because it was um, like a really dangerous time to go uh, where they're from. And later I learned because of like our ties to that situation. But at the time it was just like, oh, it's dangerous, and we knew that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and. My parents were together until, like, not very long, until I was probably, like, seven. Um, and then my mom actually remarried a couple, or actually got married, she'd never been married before, but got married uh, a couple years ago to my stepdad, who's from Peru, so that's been an interesting nice. perspective, too, on, on his kind of immigration experience and active things that he's, he's facing, his family are facing, too. Is his family, are they in the U.S., or he's the only one... My stepdad? Yeah. Yeah, my stepdad, his name's Alex. Um, he, he came to the U.S. when he was, like, in his 20s to escape, like, super dangerous stuff. In Luminoso and, and, and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so he was, like, right in the, in the heat of that. And so he came here when he was in his 20s. And his sister eventually came over, and so them two are established here. And they're working on helping their siblings get... Um, I don't know if they want actually citizenship or just like visa and travel rights and mm-hmm. stuff. But like his his mom, my step grandma, comes for six months of the year because mm-hmm. they're establishing that connection. But at the same time, his brother who has a PhD was not allowed a visa after paying the hefty fee to mm-hmm. see his daughter graduate from school in the U.S. because he's from Peru, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. And it's like, but we want to see that you're established, but apparently. Was that having a PhD in Peru is not enough of a, a tie to the country of Peru? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was recent. It was like a year ago. So that's been a really interesting perspective too, to just um, you know gain a, a different understanding of like immigration issues that are active too, 
on, on different borders. Do you want to, before you read, like tell us a little bit more about the retreat and how sure. you came to participate in that? Yeah, um, so I, I went to an informational session about um, the Iraq Regional Arts and Culture Council grants, professional development grants that they offer with a friend who's an artist. And I was like, what do you mean you can get free money to do art? Let me go to this informational session and find out what that's about. And so, yeah, I went there, and they told me kind of, like, what the basics were. And I was like, okay, cool. I can have some money to do something, so let's find a project for what I could, like, propose. And, um, yeah, I, I was in between, like, a school break when I, because I'm in grad school right now to, for my library degree. Um, but I... I looked for residencies in Mexico, and this one um, offered a space for writers, and it did have a fee attached to it, but I was like, okay, I can get there with a flight and pay the fee, and it would be covered under what the what the grant offered. And so, um, yeah, I applied, <laughs> and it, like, coincided perfectly with my school break, and they kind of were like, why now? Why, you know, and I was like, because I'm going to be a writer, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> Basically was the thesis. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I applied. And then um, my, actually, the fee for my my program was due before I knew if I had the grant. But I was like, mm, I'm probably going to get it. I'm just going to say I'm going to get it. And so I. Nice. And so I just paid it because I had to. And I figured if not, I'd, you know, figure something out. But I yeah. got it and it was okay. Yes. And so. Yeah, it was pretty, like, loose format, um, but to help actually fund, you know, supplement, because the grant covered, like, my flight and um, my program fee, but it didn't cover my rent or anything, so uh, to supplement that, I created a zine uh, to sell. It was, like, kind of a fundraiser thing, and it was just, like, who am I? Why, why am I going to Mexico? Mm-hmm. Um, what do I want to do when I'm there? And it's, it was me wanting to you know, do some personal narrative writing about my history and kind of, too, trying to like, extrapolate as much as possible the societal context of that. So, uh, in revisiting memories of my childhood, which I kind of talk about in this piece, but, like, using lime wedges to lighten my knees or my hair, um, what does that have to say about Eurocentric beauty standards? Yeah. That sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, it's a hefty, like... I don't know, tasks that I wanted to accomplish, and I wrote a bunch of things, and, you know, got really positive feedback, and it was because it was an art and ecology-focused residency that I had guidance from the art- artist, uh, like the residency director mm-hmm. and the curator, to create a cohesive piece that was related to the land. So every piece, it was three pieces, um, had a story that was inspired from physical landscapes of mm-hmm. this hacienda that I was staying on. And it was in Michoacan, the state where my parents are from, but really where my dad is from, which I realized later that mm-hmm. a lot of it was actually about connecting and understanding his experience, which yeah. I had uh, you know, the epiphany like two weeks and I was like, oh, this is about my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I thought I was over that. <laughs> but no. <laughs> keeps creeping back in yeah well especially like you said when you're in that physical space that context and having yeah that like those heat waves and the smells and Mm -hmm. like all those really intense childhood memories coming back Mm -hmm. yeah how long had it been since you'd been back like when you went to the retreat to me specifically like only a few years because I had gone to Morelia 
to see to go to Dia de los Muertos with friends a few years ago but it's been a long time since I've been to where my grandma lives and I'd like to go back and now it's more calm and I can go because it's not you know such a hectic environment um but yeah it was interesting and you know I, I've talked to my dad a little bit but um we don't have a super good relationship and that's something too that I was just exploring more with my writing and um when he and my mom separated just gradually over time that connection was weakened a lot to the point where there have been many points in my life that's kind of like okay I need to kind of move on from this relationship because I'm not really getting any benefits from it yeah mm -hmm. and there are a lot of like you know cultural I guess ideas that um we're we're having like a conflict with where it's like in Mexican culture it's you should always respect your elders and uphold them and what they say is law but at the same time, I'm coming from the perspective of growing up here and of being into feminism and being like, just yeah. because I am your daughter doesn't mean that, you know, I should give you respect without any, um, without paying any mind to my own, if that respect is reciprocated. Yeah, and knowing your culture doesn't mean those ideas are just or fair. Like, the ideas of those cultures, it doesn't... You know, it doesn't define like what's right or wrong. It yeah, yeah. Just, just because that's like the dominant portion of the culture yeah. doesn't mean that there haven't been challenges to it throughout time, yeah. and that like you don't have a responsibility to also challenge it if it's something that you don't like and yeah, your feeling is damaging you and others. And I think yeah. I do that have that flexibility of coming from a perspective of someone who wasn't raised in Mexico and mm -hmm. wasn't born in Mexico and very uniquely like that bicultural experience of, of, you know, being raised by Mexican parents who also have very mixed experiences growing up. Like my dad was raised in Mexico, yet he has citizenship and, you know, my mom had the green card but was raised in the U.S. So I'm like this weird one and a half generation that is finding my own way in it. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's a great perspective to have. Like, that's the kind of what we talk about is those, you know, when you break it down, it's not just being, like, identifying as immigrant or firstborn. It's, like, it's not that simple. There's all these different tra transitions, right. which, just like that, your dad being U.S. citizen, but this, you know, that's that's great to identify yeah and, and that, down. that variation too and how much time your parents have spent in the U.S. and like because as they spend time here they're changed by it too and you never quite know what that's gonna turn no. out to be like yeah. <laughs> still on that journey for sure likewise <laughs> all right well do you want to get into a little reading sure yeah cool. and this is actually the first time too that I've written in Spanish like anything um, it was this piece, and I wrote another piece um, called Para las Marias, which was an ode to like the my mom and my grandma, my great grandma, and the woman who I knew Maria before me, who our generation didn't get any of those names for assimilation purposes. Mm -hmm. um, my my kid will though. <laughs> I joke that if it's a boy, it'll be Mario. It's <laughs> not really the same. <laughs> you can make it that. Yeah, so I wanted to challenge you myself. Could, you could do Jose, Jose Maria. That's like. true. It's still, still weird. But yeah. but yeah, so I wanted to challenge myself, and I felt like I had the support at the residency to, um, you know, get the, the guidance I needed to make sure that it was how I wanted it sound, and I wrote it specifically in Spanish first because... I didn't want it to be translated in a way that wasn't representative of, of how I want it to sound. Because you know, I know translations can really change. Absolutely. Definitely. So, yeah. 
This is called Diez, and it's from my bilingual scene called Con las dos manos, or with both hands. Cuando tenía diez, viví por un mes entero en el pueblito donde creciste. Aguilia, ciudad hermana de Redwood City, la ciudad donde yo nací. Aguilia era un lugar montañoso y allí conocí la sensación de libertad, porque allí no era la única morenita. Allí, aparte de ese chiquillo carlingas, los niños me trataban como igual. Allí mi español era fluido y salía con facilidad, todavía sin el tormento de sonar americana, todavía sin estar enredado en la complejidad de mi identidad chicana o de ser tu hija. Cuando tenía 10, pasé más tiempo de mi vida contigo, sin darme cuenta que se seguramente sería el máximo tiempo que pasaríamos juntos. Allí en Aguilia me fasciné con nuestra, con, con nuestra historia mexicana y de tu vida pasada como vaquero. Allí me adorné con orgullo y guaraches de cuero, los dos idénticos a los tuyos. Allí en nuestro rancho bauticé la vaca que me diste a escoger con el nombre de Ángel por mi confianza de ese tiempo en Dios y en ti como padre. Todavía sin comprender que en el futuro dudaría de los dos, por culpa de pasar meses sin saber nada de ninguno. Todavía no previendo que las vacas también perderían su simbolismo de fe. Cambiado por la desconfianza, degradado a un velo, igualmente, igualmente presas de tu maraña de mentiras. Cuando tenía diez, me encontré en medio del ciclo de mi vida. Un ciclo manchado de un crecimiento injustamente acelerado y rebelde. Como la lluvia torrencial tan común en tu pueblito, ahí en Aguilia. Allí conocí el tipo de vida tan lento que formó tu juventud. Un tipo de vida totalmente opuesto a lo que me tocó a mí. Allí a los días descubrí que con trozos de limón podría ocultar el sabor de tequila y además aclarar mis rodillas de caoba. Ahí brillé por primera vez después de besarme con mi novio campesino. Y pronto conocí al lado de mi novio como mi cuerpo, era, como mi cuerpo de niña era marcado con hierro, nuevamente protegido contra los chiflidos del viejo rabo verde. Todavía sin las barreras de piedra que me ayudaste a construir, todavía sin las agallas que solita ganaría producto de mi fuerza inherente y femenina. Cuando tenía 10, jamás supe que tu papá serías el rompecabezas más complicado de la vida. Ni supe que hoy, a los 25, todavía, lo, todavía investigaría la tierra de este país de nuevo. Todavía en busca de pistas para revelar tus secretos y los sentimientos que dejases enterrados aquí en el campo. Todavía sin saber que aquí perderías tu perdón a las vacas, suplicándoles que también te absuelvan de tu ausencia prolongada. Aquí, siguiendo las huellas de la patria, buscando la inocencia que los dos hemos perdido. Aquí, decidiendo vendar mis heridas, en vez de heredar el destrozo que te mantiene oculto. Aquí, esperando que por fin te des cuenta que no 
Que nuestros recuerdos nunca se desvanecen realmente. Aquí, deseando que un día también volverías, papá, a liberarte del pasado. Aquí, en Michoacán. about with your adapting to kind of working here and establishing a career here um, how have you continued to adapt in Portland as far as your social circles and you know when you do have time to not hustle <laughs> how, how does that fit in and who fits in yeah it's rare these days that no um, but yeah uh, my my approach to friendship has changed drastically over the eight years and like where I meet friends um, when I first moved here, a lot of my friends were just like byproducts of a person that I was my, my partner at the time, and um, I made a ton of my friends too in the music scene specifically. So, like you know, indie punk music. When I first moved here, I would just be you know go to shows. You see a lot of the same people. Um, there's a space called the Artistery a long time ago, which is a cool space. You should look it up. <laughs> Doesn't exist anymore, but um, you know, I met I met people there and just like yeah, there's a lot of partying kind of situation. And then I don't know exactly when I guess like my my need for connection with people of color just started to be like, oh my god, where where is everybody? A desperate um, need. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I think too. Probably it's like the more that I like get um, get educated and like get the words that define you know the feelings like microaggressions and you know again too. I'm coming from an academic experience that wasn't about like feminism or you know had broad broad sociology and stuff like that. But um, anyways, the more I learn, the more I think I'm like. Oh, I just need people that like relate to my experience more and um, spaces where I'm not like, oh, you look familiar because when I first moved here, apparently I looked like there was another girl who was brown <laughs> and had glasses. And, um, yeah, so mm. about a year and a half ago or so, I um, became part of an online community that was primarily people of color. And it was interesting because before being added to this very big group now that's grown, I actually started organizing potlucks for women of color. And so I just would like post on Instagram and Facebook and be like, women of color in Portland, come to a potluck. I just <laughs> want to meet you. <laughs> and I think part of that too actually uh, stemmed from ending a like really close friendship with two women who were women of color that I had moved with from like high school, my yeah. high school friends, um, which is a sad thing. But um, for a long time, I didn't really feel that dire need because my two best friends were people, you know, women of color. And so through that group, I started to make connections and found about the larger group. And through that group, I've, may, you know, maintained and built a lot of friendships and community. And I will still host offshoots where they're specifically, like, femme-identified or gender non-conforming folks. I just don't really hang out with men that much. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that also became something I realized more and more was just, like, you know, I was able to build 
male friendships like out when I was an adult and was like okay not all men are total scum and then I was like a lot of men are but um (laughs) but yeah I just have been able to find very intentional communities through the internet often and I think that there is definitely a renewed sense and collective sense of like power within our power and numbers we're like wait we are here and we're going to start organizing our own things we're going to start hosting events and um you know getting together people's houses and oh, I'm going to hook you up with this job. And that sort of support for one another has been very rejuvenating for me and has given me kind of a second wind on my exhaustion with Portland. That's great. Yeah, that's a great way of self-care. And I'm sure that's still a lot of work to put into that. I mean, it's been, from what it sounds like, a few years in the making. So is that a place you're like, you're still building on it for sure? Yeah, I feel like yeah. I'm always building. I'm always that person. Yeah. I'm like, cool, new friends. I want to meet you, and like, I can't hang out with you all the time, but I, you <laughs> know, respect you, and I'll connect you with other friends. And um, I, I owe a lot of, you know, props to like YGB mm-hmm. and Doug. And um, yeah, how long have those groups been around? Because like when I first moved, I definitely was like, oh, okay, seeking that sort of um, like, I guess collective. Um, but I was curious, is this like a last couple of years thing that that's kind of, yeah, uh, YGB came about, did they just had their two year anniversary like this week? And, um, I think Doug is a year old, I believe. Um, I might be wrong on that. So don't quote me. Um, and actually too, when I worked at that tech company, I would specifically like, it was funny, we called ourselves the minorities at table, you know, like tech companies, like whatever, <laughs> alias at, um, and we were the minorities at because we would all just sit at the same table and, you know, keep each other company. And so I think that also was helpful in me being like, yeah. oh my God, I missed this. Like, yeah, because I could definitely see something like YGB or Doug growing out of, yeah, like a brunch or just a group of friends mm-hmm. that are feeling like oh well we're all talented and Mm -hmm. we all have something that we need to put out there Mm -hmm. and let's make this a little more formal Mm -hmm. and through that keep drawing more people in yeah 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 and yeah I thought it was interesting too how like I had been doing you know a little bit of organizing and not realizing that there's this other group already doing that and it was Mm -hmm. kind of it all kind of happened around the same time and yeah. Um, I'm not sure what sparked that collective kind of sense. Yeah, there's even other ones. There's uh, Portland Vegan Vegans of Color, which mm-hmm. I just think that is important, you know, it's kind of yeah, an important thing to have. Sure. So shout out to them. Yeah. Um, so I know we talked earlier and we're, we learned that you're doing your last radio show on X-Ray FM. Um, but what's, uh, what's, ahead for you other than you're still going to be working for uh, contributing to Portland Mercury but what other things do you have coming up? Yeah uh, so my last radio segment was actually a couple a couple weeks ago now okay. so I'm enjoying the, the newfound freedom um, but yeah my last episode was on the 29th of June and so we'll re- be rebooting that uh, show as a podcast in the fall it's called Is Butter a Carb? question mark which is a nod and shout out and homage to, or, oh, sorry, homage. I just learned that I pronounced it really pretty interesting. I say homage, oh, but Tess had called me out on it. Really? I looked it up. Yeah, it's like the snootiest oh, pronunciation dang. of it. Um, homage, but okay. <laughs> An homage like to Mean Girls. <laughs> yeah, homage to Mean Girls. But you can yeah find us on Facebook. <laughs> just search as Butter or Carb, and we'll be rebooting that as a podcast that's with um, my co-host Megan Hattie who does a lot of um, film and comedy stuff around Portland a long time friend who I made on the internet pre um, current current wave of internet friends 
And um, I also will be doing my very first live DJ set ever, which uh, is called Noche Libre, uh, which means like free night. Um, but it's kind of in the sense of just like having a space where we can come together and enjoy our music and not have to worry about what other people think or catering to. And so it's going to be like cumbias and corridos and, uh, you know, chicha and so on and just like all types of Latin American sounds. And that's with um, DJ Lucha, which is Luz Elena Mendoza de La Bamba, and uh, DJ Suavecito, who is uh, Fabi Reina of She Shreds. And my DJ name is DJ Mommy Miami. Which comes <laughs> yeah, which I've never actually been to Miami. <laughs> That's okay. I can, <laughs> I can help you out. Yeah. We'll work on your person. Yeah. yeah. So I want to just, yeah, inspired by uh, my fake drag persona and mommy and Miami have some more letter. And, uh, um, yeah, and then I'm also organizing the first ever um, zine fest in Oregon City. So that will be at the library that I work at uh, all, all summer long. There's going to be a series of four events with tabling on the 29th of July and I'll be selling my zine there. And then also there'll be a panel, which will be my first time moderating a panel with a, a few folks from Bitch Media, oh, um, nice. New York City, and uh, Portland Zine Symposium as well. Anna Vo and a few other people will be tabling at uh, at the Oregon City Zine Fest. Oh, that's exciting. And then uh, Amisa Chu, too, who helped with um, promoting us. She has Tender Table, or is that? Stacey no. Tran. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, Amisa Chu is the organizer for Portland Dean Symposium mm-hmm. and actually used to work at our library. She's she's dope. Um, but yeah, she'll be she'll be one of the panelists that I, that I selected. Cameron Witten is the other one of Nerd City, who's created a really um, great zine collections on the hi- organ history, specifically from a POC perspective. Mm-hmm. And then Sarah Merck, who actually illustrated some of those comics. Nice. And um, was a former online editor of Bitch Media. And so yeah, th- those are some of the things I have in the works. Um, also, a quick shout out to to some other writer crushes of color that I have in town because I didn't mention that earlier. Go for it. But Do it. Jenny Moore, shout it on up. Yeah, Jenny Moore and Santi Elijah Holy because they're they're also great and doing good work for us POC out here in the writing world. And yeah, if you want to keep up with me, my happenings they're always changing. It's Emily with two L's, P as in Prado on Instagram. And then on Facebook and Twitter, it's Emily G. Prado. Both those, again, are with two L's. Or my website, emilyprado.com. Um, <laughs> and then you have the zines. Uh, the links are on your website to yeah. the zines. Yeah, so on, on my website, there's a section specifically for zines. Um, and also will be some info on workshops I'm leading to on zine making That's in great. town. So if you want to get into zine making and are adult or a teenager, I got you. And uh, to the non-Spanish-speaking folks, if you want to know the translation of what Emily read, you should buy the zine, because it's a super beautiful story. Yeah, Yeah. I'll probably offer to it a cheap digital copy, um, but, you know, Handmade's pretty cool, too, so consider that. Yeah. For sure. Handmade. Con las dos manos. Exactly. (laughs) All right, well, bring on the internet friends, and especially more POC writers, and Emily, I'm so glad that you're here in Portland, and that you're here with us right now. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah.